If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to two passages, to Genesis chapter 12, the 12th chapter of the first book of the Bible, and then also Galatians chapter 3. Genesis chapter 12 and Galatians chapter 3. One of the reasons that God gave us five fingers on either hand is so that students of the Bible can tuck those fingers into multiple passages at once and be able to turn to them rather quickly. You're going to need to do that this morning. Genesis chapter 12, I want to read verses 1 through 4a, the first half of verse 4, and then I want you to turn over to Galatians chapter 3. We began last week a series of sermons in the life of Abraham. His narrative, the major portion of his narrative is contained in Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 22, and many subsequent chapters reflect on the life of Abraham. We'll see that some this morning, but we come uh, to our second week in Genesis 12, verses uh, 1 through 9, but I'll have us just read verses 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now please turn over to Galatians chapter 3, and I'd just like us to look at verses 8 and 9. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures that you have chosen in your providence and in your love to reveal yourself to us and to disclose your ancient plan of redemption by which your people have been saved for the generations, by which even we are saved today. We pray that you would open up our minds to understand the Scriptures and to comprehend something of how it is you've worked in the history of redemption throughout the centuries and through the generations of your people so that we too in this place, in this day, in this age, could have the gospel preached to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. One of the shared values that brought this church into existence was a shared love for the Bible, a love for Bible exposition, a love for Bible study, a love of Bible preaching. Bible preaching unencumbered by humor, unencumbered by Uh, anecdotes, unencumbered by politics. Beginning members of this church wanted faithful Bible preaching because they loved the Bible. We loved the Bible not primarily because it's a fascinating piece of cultural or religious history, not because it's a riveting story, not because we think it will make us interesting at dinner parties. We loved the Bible and we continue to love the Bible because of what it is, and that is the very Word of the living God. The Bible is divine revelation. It is God's self-disclosure. 
in words, in propositions, in narratives, in history. God has revealed Himself and His will for us, His creatures, and for those of us in Christ, those of us who are His people. And it is with these associations in our minds that we come to the Bible week by week, Sunday by Sunday, and it is with these associations in our minds that we come before it now. Now, I try my best to preach sermons that are clear, simple, and accessible, God being my helper, because most of the material in the Bible is very clear and very easy to understand, so much so that most thoughtful children can understand most of the major parts of the Bible. But the Bible is also a multi-layered book. It has some sections that are harder to understand and some sections that require a more comprehensive understanding of how the Bible fits together in order to truly and rightly appreciate the Bible as we ought. And we arrived this morning in our regular exposition in Genesis chapter 12 to one such section. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 in its original context is very easy to understand. The promises that God makes to Abram in the call that He gives to Abram, these promises that He gives are fairly simple and straightforward. It's not hard to arrive at an understanding of what it is God is promising to do for Abram. But it is also a passage, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that is expounded and expanded upon many times throughout the rest of the Bible, and it is a passage that contains ideas that will become especially important, listen, to the theology, the doctrine, the teaching of the New Testament. So understanding this passage and its connections to the New Testament requires the reader, the student of the Bible, to hold together many things all at once. But listen, if you understand this passage, and particularly the New Testament's reflection on this passage, these three verses in Genesis 12, and now the New Testament reflects on these three verses, you are a long way forward in understanding how the entire Bible is put together. This is a crucial passage in the Word of God. And if you understand the way Jesus and the New Testament writers think about this passage and interpret this passage, well, you're halfway there in understanding how the whole Bible fits together. So I just can't preach this passage this morning without taking us to some of those places where the New Testament reflects on this passage. Now, my preferred method of preaching ordinarily as a matter of discipline is to try to keep us as much as I can control in one passage throughout the entire sermon. I don't especially enjoy sermons where you have to go to like 12 different passages in order to understand what's going on in the passage under consideration. But today, it would be almost impossible for me not to do that. So here's what I need to do this morning, and here's what I need in this sermon. I need Bible people, people who love the Scriptures and who love to see the story of redemption written across the face of the Scriptures in multiple passages throughout the Bible. We need to be this morning the people who are in love with our Bibles and want to see what God has revealed to us as a matter of redemptive history. So, so as I preach this morning and as I ask you to turn to at least a few passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I want you to have your eyes on the text. So important because of some of the details that we'll see so that you could put together what it is we're to glean from this passage in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. For some of you this morning, this may be the first time ever you are seriously contemplating what we call the Abrahamic covenant. You've heard that God entered into 
covenants with particular figures in the Old Testament. Maybe it's the first time you're thinking seriously about the promises God made to Abram and the covenant that God entered into with him. Well, I urge you to pay attention closely and to try to put together and to see what it is God has done and is doing through his promises to Abraham. And then maybe you're quite familiar with the idea of the covenant God made with Abraham, but the notions of what exactly was promised and how the New Testament understands those promises, just a little fuzzy in your minds. We'll use this sermon as an opportunity to make what is maybe unclear or fuzzy cogent and clear in your mind so that you might better understand God's Word. So as the King James puts it, I need you this morning to gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, Let's have our eyes on the Scriptures this morning. Uh, I'd like to present, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the three promises that God gives, very simply. And then I want to consider how the New Testament reflects on these promises, okay? So have your eyes on Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. We'll consider these three promises. First of all, the promise of land, the promise of seed, and the promise of blessing. You're going to hear that series of three probably a thousand more times before I finish this series in the life of Abraham. Three things were promised to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing. Consider with me, first of all, the promise of land. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Look on at verse 5, second half of verse 5, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is the first of the major promises that God makes to Abram. And I want you to see in a few more passages in Genesis how God repeats this promise once again to Abram. So just turn over to Genesis chapter 13, next chapter. There in verse 14, we read this, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Turn to one more passage now in Genesis 15. See this promise of land given again. Genesis 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cademanites, etc. There's one more passage I have in my notes, and that's Genesis 17. I won't have you turn there, but Genesis 17, 7 through 8 reiterates the same basic promise. So what is the promise being made here? Very simply, land, namely the land of Canaan. God promised to Abram that He would give to Abram and his offspring after him the land of Canaan. Now, the significance of this promise of land for Abram might be lost on us in our contemporary context. So, so land and possessing land and owning land is, is just not as relevant to us now, at least here in the States in 2021, as it would have been in the ancient world. Some of you who, who own land, it's probably not like a ton of land. It's probably not hundreds of acres. It's probably an acre, or in my case, we're like on maybe 
quarter of an acre or something like that. And there might be many people here who don't own any land at all. We don't necessarily attach any great significance to land. But in the world of the Old Testament, land is of massive importance. If you don't have land, you're nobody. To have land is to have a place, to have a home, to have security and safety. You remember Abram was called to leave the land of his fathers in Genesis chapter 11 in Ur of the Chaldeans, and, and, and he was embracing the life of a sojourner, an exile, a nomad, and he was to go to the land that God would give to him. That was safety and security and a home and a future for Abram. So God is promising land to Abram. Specifically, God is promising that he will give to Abram's descendants the land of Canaan. You'll notice currently occupied but it will eventually be theirs. And this promise is maintained to his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. Okay, now consider with me the second promise that God gives to Abram. He gave him the promise of land. Secondly, he gives him the promise of seed or offspring. Look back in Genesis 12. You might be thinking, I didn't see seed or offspring in Genesis 12. In verse 2, we read this. God promises to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. What is God promising here to Abram? Well, he says he's going to make Abram a great nation and he's going to make his name great. Well, you can't very well become a great nation if you're childless, if you don't have any offspring or descendants. And your name, the name of your house, the name of your father's house It does not continue unless God gives you children that can carry on your name. So I submit to you in promising that God would give Abram or make of Abram a great nation and give him a great name, he's doing nothing other than promising Abram, you're going to have children, which is a miraculous promise because we read in Genesis 11 that his wife Sarai is what? She's barren. She's advanced in years. As far as they know, she's unable to have children. But what God is saying to Abram here is, you're going to have children. In fact, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation. And I believe this is precisely how Abram understood the promise in Genesis 12. Because if you look over in Genesis 15, just turn over a few chapters to Genesis 15, there's been no more commentary really made up to this point on this promise of being a great nation or having a great name. In Genesis 15, these initial promises are ratified or formalized in an actual covenant. They're sort of introduced in Genesis 12, they become ratified, formalized as a covenant, Genesis 15. And here at the start of Genesis 15, verse 1, we read this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Now listen to this, verse 2, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, for I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, where did Abram get it in his mind that God was going to give him children? I submit to you it was in the initial call in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when he promised that he would become a great nation and have a great name. And so Abram took that, understood that to mean God was going to give him children. God was going to give him an heir. God was going to give him offspring. And here he is in Genesis 15, we believe maybe 11 years later, and he's wondering, so where's the child? where's, Where's the thing you'd have to do to realize the promise that you made to me? So what is God going to do? What is he promising in Genesis 12? God is promising that he will give Abram a seed, that he'll give him a son, 
and that he's going to multiply his descendants, as future chapters will say, as the number of stars in the sky or the dust on the earth, and he will make Abram's name great, and he will make of him a great nation. And if you're familiar with the story of Abraham, you know that that promised son is Isaac. He's the child of promise. And that God would bring through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel, the descendants after Abraham. Okay, that's the promise of seed. So you have the promise of land. He's going to give him the land of Canaan. The promise of seed, he's going to give him offspring after him. And number three, the promise of blessing. The promise of blessing. Blessing to Abram but blessing also to the whole world. Look at verse 2 again, if you would, of chapter 12. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God says He's going to bless Abram. One of the ways He'll do that is in giving him land and children, offspring, Then God tells Abram in verse 2, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. So the blessing is going to extend beyond Abram and his immediate family. And then in verse 3, we have, okay, listen here, one of the most pivotal statements in the entire Bible. Genesis 12, 3 contains one of the most important statements in all the Bible, like program-setting, agenda-setting statements in the Bible. We read, Verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you all the families of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, all the nations of the earth. This promise is stated in another way in Genesis 22 verse 18. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So what does that mean? And how will God execute this promise? Well, at this point we don't know. It's just a statement that God makes. It's just a promise He makes that through Abram and Abram, blessing is going to come to all the families of the earth. And what's more, we actually don't have any record of how Abram himself understood this promise. We don't have record of him reflecting on and interpreting exactly how it is in him the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But what is clear at least at this point is that this promise that God is making to Abram, this new relationship God is establishing with Abram will include somehow, in some way, blessing for the whole world, a blessing for all the peoples, all the nations of the world. The blessing will extend beyond Abram's immediate family and beyond his bloodline and beyond the nation that is to come from his seed, from his offspring. Blessing will extend to all the families of the world. And notice, it is in Abram that this blessing will come. In Genesis 22, 18, it says, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The only point I want to make at this point is that God here is not announcing that He will bring blessing to the families of the world independent of Abram. So this is not God setting up a secondary program of blessing for the peoples of the world. Like, I'm going to bless Abram over here, and then there's going to be another plan for the nations of the world. No, in Abram, And more specifically, through his offspring, all the families of the world will be blessed, which seems to indicate there's an interconnectedness to these promises. God's specific dealings with Abram are going to be the precise means through which he brings blessing actually to all the families of the world. Hang on to that. 
because that's a crucial detail that will come into play later. So these are the promises, three promises that God made to Abram. I so pray that two or three months from now, that if anyone out there on the street, as I'm sure people often do, come up to you and ask you, what are the three promises made to Abram? You'll know, right? Land, seed, blessing. Land, seed, blessing. These promises become the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, which will be formalized as such in Genesis 15, will be reiterated in subsequent passages such as Genesis 17 and Genesis 22. So we're going to see God repeat these promises to Abram. But the basic framework of the relationship between God and Abram, the basic framework of what will become the Abrahamic covenant, it is introduced when God first calls Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, presented here in this passage. Okay, now here we are, 4,000, 4,100, 4,200 years after the events of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The question I want to ask in the time that remains is how should we, how should we today understand and interpret these promises that God made to Abram 4,100 years ago, stated in Genesis 12, 1 through 3? Because you understand this, right? We are in a superior position to Abram. As those who live in the new covenant era, we live this side of the cross, right? 2,000 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we have been given more revelation than the Old Testament saints were given, especially more than Abram was given. If I could bring Abraham out from stage right over here, I assure you he would envy us. It wouldn't go the other way around. We just have more revelation, more divine self-disclosure than Abram had at any point in his life. And so how are we now with a completed canon, completed Old Testament, a completed New Testament canon, understanding all that we know about Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross for sinners, how are we to understand and interpret the things that the Lord says to Abram here? Because subsequent passages do reflect on Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And listen, the New Testament as it reflects on all three of these promises, provide the definitive interpretation of them. So when we're asking, what do these promises mean? They meant something immediately in Abram's context. But the definitive interpretation of these promises is given to us in the New Testament. So all I want to do in the time that remains is go back to each one of these promises and consider in a survey fashion how it is that the rest of the Bible reflects on these promises that God gives to Abram. So first of all, consider with me land again. How are we in the new covenant to understand God's promise of land to Abram? Well, well maybe you know this, maybe this is ready in your mind, maybe not. Let me, let me just trace briefly the history of the land in the Old Testament. The land is promised to Abram and to his descendants after him, and yet we read that Abram dwelt in tents. He lives in the land uh, as a foreigner. The land is occupied as long as Abram is alive. He actually dies not inheriting or possessing any of the land. It's promised to his offspring after him. That's a correction, actually. He does own one bit of land. Do you know what bit of land Abraham owns when he dies? Just one little plot. He owns Sarah's grave, and he insisted with that plot of land to pay fair market price for that little plot of land. That story is told in Genesis 23. So he dies with basically no land to his name. And the same thing happens for Isaac and Jacob. There are accounts of Jacob having to survey the land and God in a forward-looking promise saying, I'm going to give this land to your descendants, but he doesn't possess it yet. 
Well, then through the events of Joseph's life, who is Jacob's son, God's people are relocated through famine and through God's dealings with Joseph to the land of Egypt. And they prosper in the land of Egypt, and they multiply in the land of Egypt. And what happens? Pharaoh and the Egyptians become concerned that they're becoming too great and too strong. And God's people are placed in slavery, in bondage under the Egyptians. And they continue in bondage and in slavery for 400 years. And they're perhaps wondering, what has happened to God's promise? God said that we would inhabit the land, but here, not only do we not have the land, we're living in slavery in a foreign land in Egypt. And then God's servant Moses is sent, and through his dealings with the people of Egypt, through Moses, God's people are led out, and they're delivered from the land of Egypt, and they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And then you get to Deuteronomy 1, and they're on the edge of the land, the land of Canaan, the promised land that God would give them. And God raises up a man after Moses named Joshua. Joshua successfully leads the conquest into the land, and the land is finally possessed by God's people. Some 500 years after the promises were made to Abraham, they now inhabit the land. Then you have the period of the judges. You have the period of the monarchs like Saul, David, and Solomon. What happens after Solomon? Solomon's sons blow it, and the kingdom is divided into the northern and southern kingdom. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is overwhelmed by Assyria, and the northern kingdom comes under captivity. And we believe in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom then falls to Babylon, and God's people now are out of the land. They're in exile. Once again, what happened to the promise? We don't have the land anymore. God said that that, 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 that the seed of Abram, the offspring of Abraham, that they would have the land, but where has it gone? What has happened to the promise? Well, then we turn over to the New Testament. Now, I recognize for some what I'm about to share is a little paradigm shifting. I want to encourage you to be sure that your allegiance and your devotion at the end of the day is entirely to the Bible, and not necessarily to any cherished theological system or the footnotes in your Bible. I want your thoughts about these things to be conditioned by Scripture. So, so what if I told you that the New Testament and its reflection on this land promise actually indicates that the limits of the land are not going to be limited to the land of Canaan, but rather that God's people will inhabit and will inherit and will receive the new heavens and the new earth. What if I told you what Paul says in, Abraham, uh, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13? That Abraham was, quote, heir of the world. Let me read that verse for you, Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. So you get the impression that maybe more is going on here than just giving to God's people the land of Canaan. Now let me ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This is a passage that directly reflects upon Genesis chapter 12. I want you to have eyes on this passage on your device or in your Bible, and we do have copies of the Bible in the pews in front of you or in the shelf in front of you. Hebrews 11, now reflecting on God's promise to Abraham, particularly the promise of land. And listen how the writer to the Hebrews interprets what was going on in Genesis 12. Hebrews 11 verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. 
And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So even as he's walking the length and breadth of the land, dwelling in it in tents, he's looking forward to a city, a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Now look at verse 13. Now speaking of Abraham and his descendants, the author of the Hebrews says this, verse 13, these all died in faith not having received the things promised. Abraham hadn't received the things promised. He was told he would inhabit the land, but he died and didn't have it. Hadn't received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. What is the author to the Hebrews saying? God didn't lie to Abraham. He's giving him the land all right. See, the land of Canaan was only ever like, like a down payment on what God was going to do. It prefigured this larger fulfillment. There was an immediate fulfillment for Abraham's descendants. They did inhabit the land of Canaan. But what the writer of the Hebrews is saying, there was something bigger going on here. God was promising to His people, to Abraham and to all His descendants thereafter, that He was going to be given a heavenly country that he was going to be given a city whose builder and maker is God. He's going to inhabit the land all right, but that land will be the new heavens and the new earth free from every stain of sin. It's going to be more than a plot of land in Mesopotamia barely the size of Rhode Island that people have been fighting over like cats and dogs for centuries. No, the promise is far greater and far grander. Abraham and his descendants will inherit the earth. And what will that look like? We read about it earlier in the service, Revelation 21, verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Does that sound like a city that has foundations? And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you that the New Testament understanding of the land that is promised to Abram and his descendants after him is indeed the whole world fully renewed and renovated so that we, the children of Abraham, can inhabit it forever and ever and ever. It's why Jesus, when he was among us, said things like, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He said that with some Jews sitting in front of him, his disciples. 
You think that might have shifted some paradigms for them. Well, hang on. So I shouldn't be praying that we would get back to the land of Canaan. Rather, I want to pray to be meek so that I might inherit the earth. That's why Jesus said things like in Matthew 25, 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit not Canaan, but the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. That's the first promise, land. And that's how the New Testament reflects on that land promise. Now consider with me how the New Testament reflects on seed. Okay, so God promises Abram offspring, right? He's going to make a great nation. He's going to give him a great name. He's going to bless the nations of the world through his offspring. Well, immediately, this promise is fulfilled. There is a, a, a sort of immediate fulfillment of that promise. How does God fulfill that promise? He gives to Abraham and Sarah Isaac, the son of promise. God does in an immediate and initial sense what it is that he promised Abraham. God was going to give him a son, and Isaac is called the son of promise. Now, at multiple points, the Genesis narrative uses the word offspring or seed. The word offspring can be understood like like in a singular noun way. I could say, my son, Nico, is my offspring. Like, he's my son, singular, one person. It could also be used as what's called a collective noun. If you say, who are Alex DePrima's offspring? Well, there would be three children that you could point to. It would be Nico, Cammy, and Judah, okay? It could be used in both ways. And in the Genesis story, as it's connected to Abraham, the word is used in both those ways. At points, Isaac is referred to as his singular offspring, and then God will say also, I will give you offspring after you as many as the stars of the sky, using it in that collective noun way, which can refer to lots of people at the same time. Okay, now why am I talking about collective nouns? Turn to Galatians chapter 3. And I don't think I have to actually turn to any more passages. We'll be in Galatians 3 the rest of the time. Galatians chapter 3. So the New Testament interpretation of the promise of offspring and seed involves two massive paradigm-shifting ideas. Okay, Bible people, lock in here. This is like a key to opening up so much of the treasures of the Bible. Two massive paradigm-shifting ideas that the New Testament offers to us, previously unknown and unrevealed to the people of God, but in the New Testament, through the Apostle Paul, the revelation is made in Galatians chapter 3. Here, here's the first idea that's presented to us. The New Testament understands the promise of offspring and of a seed, singular, to be fulfilled ultimately, not in Isaac, but in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Paul says, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul understands those words offspring can be used in two different ways. What he is saying is the definitive interpretation, the Spirit-inspired interpretation of how we should understand the offspring that God promised to give to Abraham, the son, the seed, through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed, is that from Abraham's line would come who? Christ, 
the true and better son of Abraham. Yes, Isaac was a partial, immediate sort of fulfillment, but he was prefiguring this larger fulfillment that when God promised offspring to Abraham, he was promising nothing less than that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come through Abraham's line. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. When we read these promises in the book of Genesis, we're to appreciate These promises involve so much more than God giving to this barren couple, the boy Isaac. Rather, through Abraham's line would come the true and better son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. That's the first like paradigm-shifting idea. The son of Abraham is Jesus Christ. Kids, remember what I said last week? I talked about doing your devotions. And I talked about how important it is to do your devotions and how a great place to start is in the first gospel of the New Testament, which is the book of Matthew. Remember I said that if if Jesus doesn't come from the line of Abraham, we're all doomed. None of us can be saved, right? In light of what I've just shared, that Jesus is the true offspring, the true seed of Abraham, now can you appreciate and understand something of the cosmic significance of that first line of the New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Without Jesus being the seed of Abraham, the true offspring of Abraham, we're all damned. We cannot be saved unless He is the true and better Son, the seed, the offspring of our father Abraham. But now the second idea, the second massive paradigm-shifting idea. I'm just going to give a teaser here because we're going to return to this a lot in the book of Genesis. It will be one of the larger themes in our series. Okay, the New Testament introduces to us the idea that Abraham's offspring, now offspring plural, his descendants, multiple descendants, offspring, should be understood not as physical descendants of Abraham. Jews, Israelites, circumcised in the flesh, but as those who, like Abraham, have faith in the promise of God and are through faith united to the seed of Abraham, who is Christ. Who are the children of Abraham? The New Testament teaches us it is not ethnic Jews. Now, of course, in a sense, Israel is the children of Abraham, right? The Old Testament talks about it in that way. But what the New Testament reveals is that the true descendants of Abraham are reckoned to be those who have Abraham's faith, who, like Abraham, believe in the promises of God, which means, brother, sister, you and I, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have repented of your sins and been united to the Lord Jesus, you are a child of Abraham. If you, like Abraham, have faith in the promises of God, you see, no one has ever been saved in the history of the world by anything other than faith in the promises of God. Abraham wasn't saved by obedience to the law. Not even Moses was saved by obedience to the law. No, the Old Testament saints were saved precisely in the way we are, by having faith in God's promise. Now, now recognize, I'm not saying that Abraham understood all the details of Jesus' life. He certainly didn't know that he would be the son of David. David wasn't even born yet. He didn't know that he was going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. He didn't know exactly how it was going to be that he was going to go to the... I'm not saying that 
Abraham knew all the same facts we do. But he had the promise in seed form. We have the full blossomed tree we see with greater clarity than Abraham. But make no mistake, faith operated in the same way in Abraham as it does in us. Abraham's faith fastened itself to the promise of God that God was going to give land, and He was going to give seed, and that He was going to give blessing to all the peoples of the world. And I don't know how He's going to do that, but I believe His Word, and I'm following Him, and I'm trusting in Him. And we'll read later in Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. And that's said to be how we're saved, like Abraham having faith in the promises of God that we see now with greater clarity in Jesus Christ. So Paul in Romans 4.11 calls Abraham the father of all who believe. Galatians 3.7 says, know then that it is those who have faith who are the sons of Abraham. This is why Jesus, again, when He was among us, uh, spoke with some harshness to those who purported to have some sort of spiritual advantage because they were from the physical line of Abraham. John the Baptist said to some children of Abraham at one point, God is able to raise children of Abraham from these stones. You bet He's able to do that. He can make children of Abraham out of our hard hearts by giving us the gift of faith and thereby making us children of our father Abraham. You know the song, right? You learned it in Sunday school or Bible camp? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. You know that song? Right leg, left leg. No, I don't know who added that part of the song. What is that song teaching? Listen, listen. 4,100 years ago, God promised that He was going to give barren, childless Abram and Sarai moon worshipers and Ur of the Chaldeans, God called them and promised, I'm going to give you children. That's us who have faith like our father Abraham. I am, I am, little old me, I'm a son of Abraham. You, if you, like Abraham, have faith in the promises of God, faith in the gospel, you're a child of Abraham. You're an offspring. You're of the seed, the descendants of Abraham. Does that change the way you read the book of Genesis? Does that change the way we go through this sermon series, recognizing that these promises are for us? Does that make God's work in redemptive history appear all the more glorious when you recognize that in these events, in nomad Abraham's life, God is working our redemption, and God is making us children, descendants, offspring of Abraham. All right, third and final promise that's made, the promise of blessing. Land, seed, blessing. Land, seed, blessing. Thirdly and finally, blessing. Stay in Galatians 3, look at verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's the families of the world, the pantata ethne, all the ethne, all the nations, all the peoples of the world. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel 
beforehand, saying, and then he quotes from Genesis 12, verse 3, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The Scripture foreseeing that God would save the nations, that He would deliver the nations, justify the nations. The Scripture in some way anticipated that this was going to come about. How is it that the Old Testament, the Scripture anticipated that God would bring salvation to the whole world? It's in Genesis 12 and verse 3, and now you know why I say it's one of the most pivotal statements in the Bible. When God said in you, Abram, all the families of the earth would be blessed, he was preaching to him the gospel in seed form. The gospel would come to all the peoples of the world, and God was going to work something in and through Abram that he could never have comprehended, something that the bounds of his faith couldn't possibly appreciate and understand at that time. But through Abram, and specifically through his offspring, Genesis 22, verse 18, God was going to bring salvation, deliverance, blessing indeed for the whole world, which means... The promise in Genesis 12, 3, that in you all the families of the world will be blessed is not a promise limited to Abram and his immediate family. It's not a promise limited to the people of Israel. The promise belongs to the world because Jesus Christ belongs to the world. In your offspring, through your offspring, through this son of Abraham, God was going to make a way by which the nations of the world could be saved, not by becoming ethnic Jews, not by being circumcised in the foreskin of their flesh, but rather by having faith in Jesus Christ who is the Savior of the world. Which means, when you read John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life, you have the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. That in Abram's seed, in his offspring, all the families of the world would be blessed. How are we to reflect on this promise now? We're to recognize through the son of Abraham all the nations are to hear the gospel. It was preached beforehand to Abram. It was anticipated in the Old Testament Scriptures. It's preached now through the gospel, which means in this promise, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed we have license and hope in going to Navrongo in Ghana, going to Southampton in England, going to Himachal Pradesh, going to Dehuk in Iraq, going to North Atlanta. Genesis 12.3 and the promise that in Abram's offspring all the peoples of the earth would be blessed anticipated this very meeting at 407 Petrie Road. I am preaching the gospel to you this morning in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Does that excite you about the glories of redemptive history and what God has written across the pages of history and across the pages of His Word? The reason I can stand before you this morning, a group of all kinds of mixed people, maybe there are some ethnic Jews here this morning, the good news is the offer is still for you as well, that as I proclaim salvation in Jesus' name, this is something that was anticipated 4,100 years ago when God promised to Abram that he would bring blessing to all the nations of the world. And the promise is that if you believe, if you have faith in God's own son, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, you will be saved. Who could make this up? Who could make this up? 
Who would have anticipated that God would work in this way? We hear a gathering of all kinds of different people from all kinds of backgrounds and different places. We can experience deliverance and salvation from all of our sin and our darkness because God promised to bring through Abraham a seed, a son. That son is Jesus Christ. And he does not belong to Jews only. He doesn't belong to Westerners only. He doesn't belong to white people or black people or brown people only. Jesus Christ belongs to the world. And the promise is that blessing should go to the nations. And God's plan is to bring to Himself a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation in fulfillment of this promise. That in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. One last illustration and then we'll be done. Imagine, use your imagination, okay? You who know the Bible, you know the stories of Scripture, you know the Exodus narrative. You know God's people are in bondage in, in, in Egypt. Imagine that you are an Israelite and you're in the land of Goshen in Egypt and it's on the eve of God's servant Moses coming and you've endured these hundreds of years of slavery and you remember the promise that God made to Abraham. He'd give land, he'd give a son, he'd give descendants, he'd give blessing to all the families of the earth. What happened to the promise? What happened? Where's God? Did he lie to us? Did he lead us on? Where's, where's the promise? And then imagine that Yahweh visits you in a dream. And you are granted to see that God's servant Moses is going to come. And that God's going to work these wonders. And God's going to lead you out of Egypt through parted waters. And you see Joshua. And you see the miraculous conquest. God giving his enemies and the land into the hand of his people. Now that would be truly wonderful, sitting in bondage and slavery and in Egypt to be granted to see that fulfillment of the promise. Okay, imagine a different scenario. Imagine that you are an Israelite. Now we're in 100 BC. You've been living in exile. All this history has happened. The nation of Israel has risen and it has fallen. The monarchy has risen and it has fallen. And here you are living in exile and you wonder what has happened to the promise of God. Did we blow it? Where's the land? Where's the land? Where's the son, the offspring? What about the nations? Blessings not going to them. They're our captors. They hate us. They hate the laws of God. What happened to the promise? Now imagine, again, that you were visited by Yahweh in a dream. But this time you were granted to see the vision that the apostle John saw in the book of Revelation. And you see the city that has foundations. And you see the new heavens and the new earth, perfect, spotless, with any stain of sin. And you see streets of gold. And you see the land of righteousness, where peace dwells forever and ever. But you see more than that city and that land. You see there are people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. You see Persians. You see those who are from the line of your captors. And at some point, good news was preached to them and they experienced blessing and deliverance and salvation and they're your brothers and sisters. There's no hatred between man. But they all live in perfect love and unity and they shine as the sun. There are the multitudes. 
And then, at the center of it all, you see a son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the true and better son, descended from the line of Adam, the line of Abraham, the line of David, the very son of God, and he's in the middle of it all, receiving praise and worship and honor and glory forever and ever and ever. Do I have to ask the question, which is better? That's the promise. Listen, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a child of Abraham. You're a child of promise. And you have been united to the seed, the son who is Jesus Christ. And the land is coming. We too, brothers and sisters, are bound for the promised land. We just finished an exposition of 1 Peter. We are sojourners and exiles in the world headed for that new city. And that new city is coming. This sermon was not designed to tell you to do anything or to tell you how to fix that relationship with someone at work or how to handle your anxiety and depression. This sermon was preached so that we might better wonder at what God has done and that we might love Him all the more and that we might anticipate the fulfillment of promises yet to come. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, it's, it's astounding and it's awesome to us that sinners with such backgrounds as ours, with so many failings, so many sins, it is astounding and awesome to us that we can be so gloriously swept up in your redemptive purposes for the whole world. We thank you that in nothing but mercy and love and grace, you called Abram out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans with nothing to commend himself, only your purpose of election, your sovereign will to bring about a way of salvation not only for our father Abraham, but for all the peoples of the world. Thank you, Father, that the promise has come to us. Thank you that the promise stands. The gospel is preached now as good news to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation under heaven. And for all those who repent of sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and follow after him, they will be saved. We pray that you would come now, that you would make many sons and daughters of Abraham here in this place. And we pray that those of us who already are children of Abraham, the children of God, that we would esteem more highly with a sense of privilege the great blessing of being counted among your people and that you would fill us with faith to lay hold of the promise that you will give everlasting life and eternal reward to all those who persevere and endure. Lord, it is hard being sojourners and exiles. We long for our home. Bring us into the homeland, into that heavenly country, into that city whose builder and maker is God, and give us all that we need to persevere unto that day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.